Welcome to The Smiley Connection, a podcast brought to you by the Smiley Professionals Network and The Smiley. On this show, we'll bring you professionals from all walks of life and across all industries to help you grow professionally and personally. We'll laugh, we'll learn, we'll connect. And who knows, you may find your next Smiley Connection on our show. Hello and yali with everyone, it's your host, Sony Qasim. On today's show, we have Nabil Gilani. He's currently a postdoctoral associate at the MIT Center for Constructive Communication in Boston, Massachusetts. Nabil is interested in analyzing and designing communications technologies to foster connections that help reduce barriers to educational, economic, and social opportunities. Postdoc is this interesting time between sort of getting your PhD and doing whatever you're going to do next, um, usually where you're trying to kind of build your your research agenda and figure out sort of what you want to focus on longer term. And that's Nabil describing what a postdoc is. So he finished up his PhD at the MIT Media Lab earlier this year in May, where he used data science, machine learning, and design to try and promote equality of opportunity in education. And next year, in fall 2022, Nabil will start a joint appointment as an assistant professor of design and data at Northeastern University. Some of his past projects include mapping political tribalism and information bubbles on social media platforms like Twitter, and experimenting with tools to help build bridges between politically and culturally disparate groups of people. And before his journey into getting a PhD, Nabil was a product manager at Khan Academy. He also founded a digital learning platform called CoreSolve to connect learners and organizations to collectively tackle real-world challenges. When he's not building products or researching or thinking about how to solve problems, Nabil volunteers with the Aga Khan Education Board. So we'll first start our conversation there before moving on to his career journey, his upbringing, his educational path, including a brief, and I mean very brief, encounter with actress and women's rights activist Emma Watson at Brown University, and so much more. And now here's Nabil talking about how his professional life and volunteer life intersect. It's nice when kind of the professional and the CFO world can align. I've been very lucky to have that opportunity. I'm currently fortunate to be on the education board for the U.S. And so my portfolio has been school and neighborhood quality. So really trying to understand what's the quality of schools and neighborhoods that our Jamaati children are attending and living in. Really trying to use like recent data sets around that are trying to measure the quality of schools, measuring how much opportunity certain neighborhoods offer children in terms of growing up and achieving upward mobility and achieving the American dream. There's been a lot of interesting research over the past couple of years where researchers have actually started to quantify how good certain neighborhoods are for kids. So we've had a chance to use some of that for Jamaati work and really understand where are children in the Jamaat at and how can we sort of uh, nudge and, and try to support them and families and accessing better opportunities. My research work also has to do with looking at kind of large-scale data sets really related to a lot of different things. I guess generally the interest has been in trying to mitigate segregation or fragmentation in society. So it's obviously sort of a big topic, both kind of how it manifests online. So something you probably thought a lot about is just how we tend to immerse ourselves in these kind of segregated echo chambers or filter bubbles on social media in terms of the information we consume and share. But Segregation is a feature of our everyday life, right, in terms of sort of where we live, the neighborhoods we live in, the schools we attend are often racially segregated, segregated by income. So it's been interesting, especially when you think about segregation neighborhoods, to think about the Jamaati work we're trying to do and 
think about how we can kind of use technology and data to understand those trends in society and then try to intervene in some way. So there's been a lot of conceptual alignment, a lot of alignment in terms of methods and data. How did you get involved with the Icon Education Board? Great question. So originally it actually started, it's probably been just over 10 years. So when I was an undergrad. Wow. I was just kind of hanging around and the leadership at the time in the Northeast, they were trying to do some work in college prep and just trying to support students in applying to college. And one of the holes we'd identified was really helping students write college essays. College essays, such a big part of your college application experience. And so I remember I was like trying to get some people to do that. I was like, this is a need, this is a need. And then like, I just remember one night, I think I was just like really tired of doing my homework or something. And then I just like made a deck for a few hours and I sent it off to the leadership and you know, had an opportunity to kind of build on that and work on that. And over the years, you know, I had a chance to join the regional board and the national board a couple of years. So it just started pretty organically. So did you just sort of like have those Jamaati connections with the leadership beforehand and that's how you kind of got sucked up into it? I think the onset of the education board at the time in the Northeast, who happens to now be my onset on the national board. So that's also a story I tell is just how I basically just follow him around wherever he goes. But I was at Brown at the time in Providence. So we would come to Boston, Jamath kind of, he lived in Boston. So I think we just sort of met. I think my brother, actually, my older brother was on the education board a few years earlier. This was like early 2000s, basically. I kind of learned about it through him. So yeah, it was just a bunch of people that I admired doing this work. And I was like, oh, it seems cool. And I care about education. So. Yeah. Does your brother work in education as well? He's a doctor. I feel like healthcare and education are kind of analogs to one another in many ways. So the other education, but yeah. Got it. Um, so I'd love to talk a little bit more about the projects that you've worked on at MIT. And before we dive into that, I just want to read something on your website. Okay, so for listeners, maybe you has a website. I saw that you wrote... I'm a postdoc at MIT Center for Constructive Communication, interested in analyzing and designing communications technologies to foster connections that help reduce barriers to educational, economic, and social opportunities. And I know you were talking about that a little bit, but could you unpack that a little bit more and give us examples of just what are some of the things that you've worked on that kind of hit at that? Sure. Yeah. I was scared you found some spelling error or something, which you probably did also, but... (laughs) (laughs) No, you're um, good. You're good. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I feel like the really broad frame, as I mentioned, if you really zoom out, it's like, honestly, like personally, just very inspired by the principles of our faith, like all the speeches Hazarmam has given over the years, especially talking about pluralism, really, how do we cultivate a more like mutually supportive, inclusive society, right? Just like kind of really the broadest frame. And part of that is how do we really, truly learn to appreciate diversity? Well, in order to do that, we have to be connected to diversity, right? We have to be exposed to diversity. We can't live in these separate pockets, whether it's our own little neighborhoods or our own enclaves online and what we read and who we connect with. We can't just kind of live in these comfortable cocoons and expect to learn about different views, different perspectives, different ways of seeing the world. So I think just generally, first of all, thinking about how do we engender some of that appreciation for diversity and then also mobilize that appreciation and that desire to help each other to really improve quality of life, right? So that's in accessing higher quality education, that's in getting better paying jobs, whatever it means to go from, hey, diversity is important to really trying to champion it and help people from diverse backgrounds and different backgrounds from our own get a leg up in life. So I guess concretely, some of the ways that's manifested, you know, more on the kind of diversity and appreciating diversity front has been, when you think about this issue of how we consume information online, how we connect to people online, I think a lot of people, especially in the past several years, certainly now, everybody's heard the term filter bubble or echo chamber, 
basically this idea that when we're on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, we're consuming content that often reflects our a priori biases, right? The biases that we already hold, the ways that we see the world. We like reading things and we like connecting with people that agree with us. And sometimes that's good. That can create a space where you can build solidarity, et cetera. But in terms of really challenging our viewpoints, growing as people, sometimes that can be stifling. And so some of the things we've done is we've sort of experimented with building different digital tools that, first of all, just analyzing the nature of echo chambers on places like Twitter. How bad are they, right? Especially in the context of political discourse. When I joined MIT, it was right around the time of the 2016 election. So the lab had this project where they were collecting millions and millions of tweets every day about the election. And they had built you know, machine learning classifiers to automatically classify tweets into hey, what issue are they about with respect to the election? Are they about immigration? Are they about gun policy, et cetera? And so uh, part of what I help do is really try to look at what are the social networks of people who are talking about these issues online? How fragmented are they? Are the Republicans and the Democrats connecting with each other? Or are they not? And as you can imagine, they're mostly living in their own universes. And so one of the projects we worked on was this project called FlipFeed. And basically what that was, was a Twitter extension that you could install as a Chrome extension. Even you could press a little button that we added to your Twitter feed that would allow you to replace your Twitter feed with the feed of somebody with a different political ideology. So you could basically teleport into their media ecosystem or their media universe and sort of see the world through their eyes, so to speak. Now, that could be dangerous in many ways, right? That can go wrong in many ways. But what we tried to do is experiment with different ways of preparing people to have that experience, help them try to more empathically understand different people's points of view. So that was kind of an example of one project that we worked on to try to do that. We worked on other things along those lines as well. You know, on the schools and neighborhoods, when you talk about segregation in schools and neighborhoods, one of the things we recently worked on, or I guess we're working on now, actually, maybe I can share, is um, really looking at this issue of school segregation. So why are schools segregated? Largely, it's because neighborhoods are segregated, right? And where you live in this country is often where you go to school. Now, there are charter schools, there are school choice, but for the most part, where you live is where you go to school. And that's often why parents buy homes in certain neighborhoods is because it feeds to certain schools. So, you know, we can ask this question of what if we redrew attendance boundaries, right? Attendance boundaries are set by districts, but what if we actually redrew the way that attendance boundaries work so that certain houses are now zoned for other schools? That's going to upset a lot of parents. But if you think about it, you could actually reduce segregation that way, right? If you actually intentionally optimize for diversity. So that's an interesting algorithmic problem. You can actually model that as a computer simulation, you can say, okay, how can I reallocate homes or census blocks, these geographies and in a school zone to different schools in order to maximize diversity in those schools, but also while making sure no kid needs to travel an hour to school or something crazy, right? So you can set certain constraints. So that's some of the work we're starting to do now is what are some counterfactual realities, right? What are new realities we can envision? How can computers help us envision those? And ultimately, how do we start to action some of those things in society? Wow, that's amazing, really. That's, that's very interesting. Even the flip feed, like as you were talking, I was kind of Googling on it a little bit more. And I mean, I'd read it earlier, but were there any ways for you to see like how many people downloaded that Chrome extension or used it or anything like that? Yeah, it was interesting. So flip feed, it was such a charged time. I think it was like the day after the election, you know, one of my colleagues and I started talking about it. And then we kind of just worked with a couple other colleagues. It was really fun just working with friends on this, but there's some amazing people that just very quickly, you know, a friend of mine very quickly built the extension, another friend very quickly like figured out how to 
you know, constantly refresh feeds as people are installing the, the extension. So we had like, I think over 3000 people that tried out the tool. Yeah. And then we were able to just kind of analyze how they used it and all that. So yeah, it was a very interesting time to do that work. It was right after the election and also just interesting to see people actually have appetite for it. Another project Nabil worked on dealt with ranking schools and finding meaningful ways to compare them. You know, there's another one, actually. This is kind of inspired by Jamaati work. So this is like years ago, I was on the phone with a parent in the Jamaat who she had to list what schools she wants to rank for her child to attend. So this was in a large urban school district so that where there is school choice so she could rank her preferences. And I just remember being on the phone with her and she was Googling schools and she was using their reviews kind of like how we would like read reviews to decide where to eat you know or something like that like she was using that to decide how to rank her child's schools part of me was like well you know maybe we should click through we should read this page about the school we should read the test scores and things like that but like she wasn't familiar with the system it's not her fault right like she was just kind of using the internet like a lot of us use the internet and so at that time i was just really curious i was like what are these reviews what are they actually saying about school quality right it's like people are writing all these things but are they is, is what they're writing reflective of things that actually measure the quality of the school or are they just reflecting garbage? Is it just like, yeah, can we even trust what parents are saying online? So a few years ago, we actually scraped uh, with permission from the platform. We used a web scraper to just pull over a million reviews written you know, across 100,000 schools across the US, almost all the schools in the US. And we use natural language processing methods, which is basically not all natural language processing uses machine learning, which is a huge buzzword, which everybody's probably heard at this point. But, you know, machine learning is like teaching machines to make sense and patterns and data or find patterns and data. And natural language processing as a field is basically how do we use machines to understand human language? So we kind of built on some recent advances in natural language processing, try to understand what are these reviews saying about the quality of the school versus things like the demographics of the school. Like you hope they're saying more about the quality of the school and not as much about the race of the kids going to the school or the income of the kids going to school. And what we found was that there was a much stronger relationship with those racial and income demographics of the school than there were with actual measures of how much is the school helping kids learn. So that was concerning because I was like, oh my gosh, like we're reading these things and parents are reading these things and potentially making choices on where to send their kids. But there's not a lot of, on average, right? There's not a lot of value in, in those reviews in terms of quality. So that certainly has affected how we you know, we don't recommend parents to use reviews as their kind of end-all be-all. And we're now working with that platform to see if we can improve the quality of actually what they're sourcing on their site. That's awesome. That's super meaningful work. So I'd love to talk about your past. When you think about little Nabil, right? <laughs> when was that first <laughs> moment where this idea of, you know, I want to work in education, but also in changing the way the world thinks about all these very important issues and sort of blend that with technology. I mean, when did you get this idea? Bring us to that moment. I don't really think there's a there's a moment. Um, and I still think I'm trying to figure out what I want to do with my life, you know, as much as, as, much as uh, I think all I've settled on is I hope and shall I have a chance to just uh, ask and explore questions that, that feel meaningful and, and hopefully useful. But, you know, I guess there was a time in undergrad, I remember I was a computer science and applied math major, and I spent the first two years like taking computer science classes, you know, learning software engineering, all of that. And then I got to a point in my third year where I was like, 
what's all this for? You know, like, what am I actually doing with this? How am I helping anybody with this? So I remember there's a professor who I just like super admired at Brown. He was just like this amazing guy. He was using computer science to try to create plans for responding to natural disasters, right? So like, how do you figure out how to route repair crews to disaster sites in order to repair damages after a hurricane, for example, as quickly as possible? That's like a really hard computer science kind of combinatorial problem, right? It's like, what order do you send the crews in? All of that, if you try to saw it, try every combination, it'll literally take the computer forever. So you have to be a little clever in sort of how you design those algorithms. And so when I heard he was doing that, he was writing algorithms to figure out how to match kidney donors with kidney patients, right? Just all these kinds of assignment things. Actually very similar to the kinds of rezoning, school rezoning problems I just talked about earlier. But I just thought that was so cool. And I just wrote to him this really long email and I was like, hey, like, you know, I took your class last year, like, I'm just like feeling like I'm not doing anything useful. Like, I just, I really admire your work. And I just wanted to learn from you about like, how can I start to work on some of these problems? And it was much longer than what I just said. It's like, I was like, I, this guy's not going to read this. And I remember he wrote back the very next morning. He said, of course, like, come in, we'll talk about it. And, you know, we ended up working together. He was my senior thesis advisor. He's been a mentor. We were my grad school recs. I talked to him as I was like negotiating my job offer and trying to get advice on the job market this past year. And we're actually working together on the school rezoning project. So, you know, that's one story, but I think the lessons there are like, reach out to people you admire, right? I think that's something that I was very lucky that he wrote back and he was open to that. And I think there's a lot of people that really want to help you find what you're passionate about. You know, and I think the educators, especially in my opinion, are really sometimes those people. So that was definitely a pivotal moment for me. Can you walk us through how the rest of your path unfolded from when you were younger to going to high school to realizing that you wanted to go to Brown? I mean, how to, yeah, could you just walk us through that? Yeah, totally. You know, when I was younger, I feel like an interesting upbringing. I mean, first of all, I thank my parents a lot, right? I think like a lot of us, but you know, my mom, my dad, my brother, I have an older brother, as I mentioned, and I think our parents really valued education, you know, and I think that's in some ways, it's kind of the typical like immigrant American story. And I feel lucky as a younger sibling. It's like, of course, the older sibling always is like the trial and error child where my mom learned a lot of things with him that then sort of made it easier for me. So I think that was always the context. It was like education is important, it's valuable, but it's also like about balance, right? So I feel like we didn't feel a lot of pressure from our parents, which was really great. I, I don't know. I'm just kind of, I hope Inshallah, if I have an opportunity to be a parent to learn kind of how to strike that balance. But I think that was a really important tone and underpinning of us sort of growing up. We grew up in this town called Fredericksburg, Virginia, which you usually have to follow up with that big Civil War town because that's how people hear about Fredericksburg, Virginia. I don't know if you, you, you were in D.C., so you might have heard of Fredericksburg. Yeah, but, but I mean, it, it does have yeah. a, a strong tie to U.S. history. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I drove by like cannons from the Civil War every day to school. Right. I mean, it was like this interesting Civil War legacy that, you know, I would drive on the way to Kane, Richmond, Jamaatana, we would drive by Stonewall Jackson's shrine, literally Stonewall Jackson shrine. If you know, Stonewall Jackson is a big Confederate general. So looking back, there were a lot of interesting things Fredericksburg valued that <laughs> I think may not be the case in today's day and age. But you know, I was in middle school when 9-11 happened, and I didn't realize it at the time. And I feel like this is, again, an experience probably a lot of us have had, but it's kind of striking this interesting balance of like really being the only Muslim kid, probably in the school maybe, right, at least for a while, and learning how to navigate like jokes from your friends. You know, they weren't trying to be offensive, but you're trying to find a way to like feel okay with it, but then it kind of still like stings and you don't really know how to process that as a kid. So I feel like that, I was sharing this with Reem the other day, I feel like that, I only realized this probably in the past couple of years, but I feel like that led me to kind of try to force myself to 
see the world in like a more nuanced way, right? So it's not black or white, right? It's not like they're terrible people or they're amazing friends, right? It's like everybody has a little bit of all of that in them. And so when I think about, you know, this, these issues of diversity and all of that that I'm interested in now, it's like, well, obviously, again, first of all, largely kind of inspired by the words of the imam, but at the same time, it's also like, I think the real pursuit is like, how can we try to cultivate a society that does see more nuance, right? That doesn't try to just resolve everything to black and white. And, you know, that's an ongoing personal pursuit as well. But I definitely feel like looking back, whether I consciously perceived it or not, there were a lot of those links to some of those earlier on experiences. Yeah, high school was high school, you know, we went to get, we were lucky to kind of get to go to a magnet program, which I think now that I do school quality, I've researched all of my schools that I went to and my base high school was not the best school, but I think the magnet program, I think was probably a big reason why we were lucky to kind of get into college and get to do all of that. Got it. And so when you're approaching your senior year in high school, did you know that Brown was the place that you wanted to go? Like, was that your dream school? You know, my brother went to Brown. So it's funny, like I followed him and my parents on all of his college tours, I guess when I was in seventh or eighth grade. And no, I don't think either of us really felt like we could get into Brown, but then he applied and I was like, okay, like he got in, like I can try. And I applied to a lot of places. I tell people this story a lot. Like I applied to a lot of places and I got waitlisted at a lot of really good schools. I got rejected from a lot of really good schools. Brown was the best school I got into. So I was like, okay, like, you know, my brother's there for one more year. You know, it seems like a cool school. So yeah, it seems like a great opportunity. I don't think I was like, I need to I need to go to the school. You know, I did have this weird obsession with Princeton and I got rejected. And I like don't really know why. I looked back and I'm like, I actually don't have a good reason for wanting to go to Princeton. So I think that also taught me that sometimes we just want things, but we're not clear on why we want them, right? It just sounds like things we should want. So I think that's something that I've tried to reflect on a little bit more too. Got it. So you graduated from Brown in, in 2010, right? Uh, 2012. 2012. And I do have okay. some Emma, Watt, Emma Watson stories if you're interested oh, later. Yeah. But, uh, I let, yeah. Nothing, nothing too fancy, but uh, she did say excuse me to me a couple of times. I'm just saying, you know, I was in her way. So that's, you know, I count those as encounters with Emma Watson, but anyways, that's the extent of it. But yeah, we did, I did overlap. That's my, that's my claim to fame is I overlapped a brown with Emma Watson. Oh, we should have started the interview with this. That's interesting. <laughs> um, it would have enticed people to listen. You can still splice and dice, you know, you can still splice and dice. Exactly. So, you know, you started your path at Brown and you said you majored in math. Sorry, what was that again? Computer science and applied Same math. <laughs> kidding. Yeah, kidding. I, know, I know. Not not real math. I always tell people I didn't do real math, I did applied math. Because like real math is really intense. Applied math's like, okay, yeah, it's okay. But yeah. So what made you pursue that degree? It's <laughs> a good question. Oh, so yeah, I guess here's another story. So I remember taking a computer science class in high school and I just hated it. I was like, I did not want to do computer science. And I remember my mom before I went to start at school, she was like, What do you want to major? And I was like, anything but computer science. Like, I just don't want to do computer science. I was like interested in finance for some reason at the time. I have no idea why. No offense to finance. I just, I can't see myself in finance now. And I don't know why I was interested then, but I was. And so I was like, oh, there's this applied math economics major at Brown. Maybe I should do that. And one of the requirements was a programming class. But I was like, you know what? I don't want to take that upper level class, which also happens to be the intro class for majors. I'd rather just take this other class that'll just get me done with the requirement and I can move on. So I remember actually talking to my brother about that. And he was like, just take the other class. Like, it's cool. You know, you make games. He had taken it just for fun. He's like, you get to learn how to make Tetris and Java and stuff. I was like, oh, that sounds like, okay, whatever. So, so I started taking that class. And I remember like the second assignment, they structured the assignments where 
you only had to write a couple lines of code and it was like this magic showed up on the screen, right? They did a lot of the TAs wrote a lot of support code. And so, but it was meant to kind of entice you and engage you and make you feel like you can really build some of these, these interesting tools. So I remember the second project was Lightbright. I don't know if you remember the game or the, the board Lightbright, you'd like basically put lights and pins into a board and things light up. I don't know if that sounds I think familiar. I do. Yeah, I think I do. Yeah. <laughs> we had to make a digital version of that. All, all I had to do was write like one or two lines of code. Um, and uh, I was struggling. It was like so hard. I was like, oh my God, what is it? And I went to the TAs for help and I kept going back and forth. And then I finally like got Lightbright to show up. And it was like this amazing feeling. Like I can't describe that feeling. I right? just, the way that, that I felt, I was like walking down the street after that. I was like, man, I could really do this. Like, I want to do this, right? I want to work on this. And so that's kind of when I started taking computer science classes. And it wasn't all like light bright, you know, sometimes it sucked to be honest. Like, you know, some of the classes weren't the most exciting. They're really mathy or whatever they were, but it was just like challenge, but then feeling like people had my back to help me. And I think that balance was really helpful. So going from Brown to then Oxford, right? How did that happen? You know, my second year, I did an internship at Microsoft after my sophomore year, and I went back after my third year. And, you know, it was interesting work, like I was a program manager, so it was like designing software and all of that. But I was like, kind of in the spirit of what I mentioned earlier, that crisis email I had sent to my, my professor, I was kind of in this mode of like, what can I like do to help people with whatever, all this knowledge I've been lucky to get, right? Or how can I help people with it? And it was just like this really vague question. And so we started doing some work in Providence Public Schools. We were kind of going in and teaching kids how to code in this programming language called Scratch, which many people might have heard of. And that was just really gratifying. It was just really amazing to see like how technology could unlock new doors in education, right? New opportunities in education. So I got really excited about that, but I couldn't really figure out how to work in that space, right? Like, I mean, there was definitely ed tech, but I feel like in the past 10 years, ed tech has become a lot bigger. Khan Academy was just getting on the scene at the time. So I was like, you know what? I feel like I want to learn about these issues more, especially education, but I don't really want to pay for grad school. So how can I get grad school paid for? So I heard about these fellowships. You know, there are a bunch of scholarships and fellowships you can apply to when you're just finishing undergrad, even when you're a couple of years out. There's even more now. At the time, it was things like Rhodes, Marshall, Fulbright. Now there's like Knight Hennessy, there's Mitchell. Mitchell might have existed before, there's Schwartzman. So for any listeners, I, I encourage you to look into all of these opportunities. I just applied for some fellowships. And I remember, you know, reading like the previous Road Scholar bios, and I was like, oh my God, like these people like save the world by the time they turn 13. You know, it's like I'm not one of these people. And I remember asking one of my professors, I was like, okay, but I'll apply, right? Maybe it'll be useful to force myself to write a statement and think about what I want to do with my life and all that. And so I asked one of my other professors if he'd write a recommendation and he was like, sure, but you know, you have no chance, right? Like that's, he literally said that. And he was more just like trying to protect me from spending a lot of time on something and being disappointed. But I was like, yeah, I know the odds are kind of crazy, right? But like, I just feel like I want to try and think it'll be a good personal experience for me. So I wrote essays for all these fellowships and scholarships. I didn't get an interview for Marshall. I didn't get an interview for Fulbright. I think you have an on-campus interview. I don't even know if I got an interview for Fulbright. That goes to show you how far I got into the Fulbright process. But I remember it was like, I was feeling really dejected my senior fall of undergrad. And I just didn't know what I was doing. I felt like I was on this roller coaster. I had gone through these three years of school and I was like back to square one, not sure what to do with my life. And then I remember the next day I got a call for that I got an interview for the roads. And so I was like, I was, I was excited. I was like, okay, like this is, you know, this will be fun. I don't know if it's going to work out, but whatever. 
then I went through that process and then, you know, alhamdulillah, I was fortunate that they gave me the roads. And I just remember like calling my mom and she was so happy and all of that. So, I mean, roads, you know, you end up, you basically get funding to go to Oxford for two plus years. And so it was kind of like Oxford by default, but it was an amazing opportunity, of course, because I got to study education for a year. I got to get deeper into machine learning, you know, build some foundations there, which I continued in grad school here in the U.S. and got to meet amazing people. A lot of the friends that I made at Oxford are still friends today. And I think really, I don't know if I would be in academia right now or working on a research if it hadn't been for that extra time that I've had to just kind of explore and try to work on a company, which I know is something you brought up previously. CoreSolve was not financially viable to answer one of your questions, which I'm happy to talk about as well. It's just a great opportunity to just explore new things. Between 2013 and 2015 is when you started CoreSolve, right? So how did that idea come about? Who did you work on it with? And and just where did it go from there? And why did it fail? So, you know, it was around the time, fall of 2012. So there was actually an article in the New York Times written by Thomas Friedman called The Year of the MOOC. So it was this huge hype around these massive open online courses, right? Which are, you know, Coursera, edX, a lot of us have heard of those platforms now. At the time, they were all new. And basically, is this idea, like, anybody in the world can take a Harvard class or, you know, a MIT class or whatever it is. And you had these learners that were coming from all over the world together. It's like tens of thousands of people learning at the same time together. And so it just seemed like a really powerful thing, right? It's like, okay, right now what these classes are doing is, is like broadcasting knowledge to them. What if we could, so the idea was like, what if we could also somehow like harness their knowledge as well, right? And sort of coordinate and, and, and get them to, work on projects that are for their learning benefit, but also could produce useful outputs for nonprofits, for other organizations that could really benefit from that global knowledge pool. The idea of CourseSolve is basically just a marketplace that connected these learners who are taking these online courses with organizations to solve real world problems together. And so, you know, we partnered with MOOCs that were offered on data science, on business strategy, really classes where you build a certain skill set, but really what you need to do is apply those skill sets to projects in order to kind of hone and, and, and uh, cultivate them. You know, we, we were fortunate, we were able to recruit a couple hundred organizations, several thousand learners over about a year and a half. And some of the collaborations were amazing, right? I just remember hearing about projects that had 30, 30 or 40 learners from 30 or 40 countries, right? In some cases, like just spread out all across the world. The person in California was waking up at 5 a.m. for calls. The person in Australia was like staying up super late to join the same call. So it's just this like really inspiring example of how people are coming to get together to sort of learn and work together. I think uh, some of the success stories from there that we heard were, you know, there are some people that were like, you know, mothers who had stopped working and were able to re-enter the workforce by leveraging their course all experience to build out their CVs to show companies, hey, I can do you know, work in sort of a, a workplace setting and I can build new skills, which was really, really cool to see. I think the biggest issue was we didn't really think about what the business model should be from day one. You know, we even went back and forth, should this be a nonprofit? Like, what should this be? And I think we chose to try the for-profit route largely because of like financial liability and just other sorts of things that might take a different route for nonprofits. But we didn't really have strong hypotheses for what the business model should be. And we sort of spent about a year trying to like backwards map a bunch of business models. So I think it's like kind of an obvious thing. If you're going to start a company, know how you're going to make money, right? If it's a for-profit company. So we clearly didn't start with that. But I think it was honestly, it was just really incredible, just an experience. I mean, we sort of describe it. I, I worked on, I should have mentioned this, with an amazing friend. He's like another brother of mine and he was in the UK at the time. I love how he describes it. He calls it his MBA. 
Yeah. So, you know, it's certainly an investment of time and resources, but I think all of us learned so much that we were able to kind of, you know, use and build upon for other work. There's like other people out there that are interested in applying to the Rhodes Scholarship or any other kind of fellowship programs. What do you think helps make you stand out from the crowd when you sort of nab that scholarship? And what are some things that other people should keep in mind as they're navigating their educational journey and thinking about applying to something like that? I don't know what made me stand out. I think it was a mix of blessings and luck and all of that. But I, I will say I've had a chance to be on a selection committee, a couple of selection committees for the Rhodes Scholarship. So this is where, you know, you're on the regional committee, you look at everyone who's applied from colleges, and then you shortlist the people to interview. And then it's kind of a weird process. You interview those people, and then each interview is like six panelists interviewing one candidate, right? And you do like 12 or 14 of those over the course of a weekend. And then you make all the candidates. It's kind of like weird, almost torturous, but you make candidates wait in a room together for hours while you deliberate. And then you walk in and then you announce two names and then that's it. Everyone else goes home. <laughs> so, wow. so it's just this weird, you know, kind of this uh, interesting. That's what what and, you had to go through? Yeah. So I was sitting there playing cards with people for hours and then they came in and announced two names and then everyone just went home. So uh, I, I went to McDonald's personally, but, you know, cause it's in <laughs> Atlanta. So I think, you know, one of the things that really personally, and I'm just one, one of the reviewers and I'm not on a committee this year, but one of the things that's really stuck out to me is people are just kind, you know, I think it's like, it's interesting. And, you know, there's talk so much about achievement and, you know, this and that, and how are you, what company are you starting and how are you saving the world and all that. But it's like, what about kindness? What about being a good person? Right. And I think those things, you know, they, they mean different things to different people, but I think there's just something refreshing when you just come across someone who's just a nice person. Right. And I think I find that really refreshing when I'm reading someone's essay and that just seems to come through. They're funny or, you know, just like there's just a person right before all the accolades. Because to be frank, it's like at some point, every time I read these applications, I'm like, I would have never gotten it. You know, same with when people apply to our lab at MIT. I'm like, I would have never gotten it if I was applying this year. It's just like this amazing. It's like people get more and more amazing every year. But then at some point you're like, okay, everyone's amazing. Right. Their CVs are great. But like, who are they? Like, what is their heart like, right? What do they care about? What do they value? And I feel like that's the kind of stuff ultimately that matters, right? Because that's who you're going to be around people. Like you're going to, you're going to be a person, right? You're not going to be a resume. You're going to be a person. So I think it's like trying to just show that you're kind and not obviously not faking that. Like you, you, you are kind hopefully, right? But like, I think just really letting that part of your personality come through and yeah. And then just trying to help people see like the depths of your heart and soul. I know that sounds cheesy, but I really think there's, that's a really powerful thing when people can see that. So the, the reviewers on your side, well, when it was your time to apply, they probably saw something, you know, deep inside your soul. <laughs> I, may, maybe. I don't, I don't know what they saw, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to ask it because they might take it away. So. So moving forward, you're about to be done with your time at Oxford. If you've created this company, CoreSolve, then CoreSolve dissolves because mm -hmm. it's not a viable long-term product. Mm -hmm. So tell us where your headspace is at now. It's the end of 2014. Where are you at? Yeah, I'm struggling, man. It's the first time in my life when I'm not sure what's coming next, you know? I mean, I felt that way my senior fall, but like, this is like real deal, right? It's like the adult world now. I'm like done with grad school. My first time, clearly I have more grad school to go, but like at the time I was done with grad school and I thought this company was going to be a thing. And it's sort of increasingly becoming clear that it's not right. And that's a hard thing to just kind of accept it's something you've poured so much into to just kind of call it right. And who knows, you know, maybe if you hadn't called it or you tried a little bit harder, maybe it could have been different. But I think 
you have to listen to yourself too and kind of see if your heart's really in it or not. And um, I think like, I just wasn't as excited about it and as it was before. And it was, it just, it felt like there were some fundamental flaws that structurally were not, were not going to make it viable. You know, it's funny, like I'd run into a friend, uh, I went back to Brown in January of 15, 2015 to do some career thing. I, it's funny, like I didn't have a career, but I was talking at a career panel, which is always funny. <laughs> make it yeah, till you ran, make it, right? Yeah. <laughs> I ran into an old recruiter slash friend and she had just started working at Khan Academy. And she was like, what are you interested in? And I was like, oh, like, I don't know, data, education stuff, technology stuff. And she was like, oh, we're hiring for this new role. Like, you know, Sal, like Sal Khan, right? Like really wants to know what's going on with the data on the platform. I was like, oh, that's great. Like I can send it out to people, like just send me the job posting. So I like emailed it out on all these listservs and stuff. And then I remember a month later, I was like, I need a job. I like wrote back to her and I was like, hey, are you guys still hiring for this role? <laughs> you know, I wasn't sure. I mean, it wasn't just to be frank, like it wasn't like the most amazing thing I'd ever heard about, but it seemed cool. It seemed interesting. It seemed like kind of roughly in the space I was interested in. So I reached back out and everyone was really kind. And, you know, I got to interview and fortunately they made me an offer and then so I ended up going to Khan Academy in the spring of 2015. So the role was a product analyst, uh, which I think is a pretty common role now in tech companies. This other person and I were the first product analyst they hired to really try to start the product analytics division or sort of function at Khan Academy. And I remember my first three months, I hated it because I had been working on the startup and I had so much autonomy and also like was thinking about product and building things. And then as a product analyst, you were mostly just, you were just kind of like, looking at data and which is what I do now for research, but it was more like data. Like it was like, Oh, somebody has a question about how many learners were on the platform yesterday. Right. You answer that question. So they're useful questions, but it just wasn't as exciting. So I remember going to my boss who actually was Sal's buddy at MIT. So Sal and Shantanu, uh, Shantanu also, you could kind of think of him, I think is one of the founders of Khan Academy as well. Shantanu is my boss. And I, I remember just at some point I was like, Hey man, like, I don't think I deserve any better, but I'm really not liking my job right now. I just, I just told him and he could have been like, get out. That's great. You can leave. But he was really kind. And he was like, well, what do you want to do? Right? Like, what are you interested in? And so I was like, I don't know, like something on the product side, like building things more. And so he was like, okay. So then I ended up switching teams and there was some interesting kind of a hole where that nobody was focused on a certain set of projects and, you know, I had a chance to kind of plug in there. And yeah, that was, I felt really grateful just to have that chance to, kind of move around and it's a small company at the time. I think they're still pretty small, but it was, it was a fun, fun time. I think that also gives us like this other life lesson of, you know, if you are kind of unhappy in the role that you're in or you feel like you'd like a different challenge, then speak up, right? Obviously yeah. maybe not go to your boss and say, I'm really bored or I hate <laughs> what I'm doing. Right. But I think, you know, in a strategic way, you know, I've, I've done that before in my own career so far where every time I felt like, you know, a year or two years in, once you're level of responsibility and the challenges and tasks that you have sort of flat lines and you feel like you're yeah. ready for something different or maybe you're not as engaged as you used to be. And I think when the people around you, whether they're your supervisors or just other people that kind of like your mentors or champions of you, see that you're a hard worker and that you're, as you were saying, you know, deep inside your soul, they see that you're a good person and that you're pleasant to work with and you're passionate about things. And then I think that they help lift you up and, you know, put you in the right places that you need to be in. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And I think it's really great when we're looking for work. One thing I've learned and I try to encourage people is like, think about the type of work, but then obviously think about the people too, right? Because sometimes you could be working on something, not that you hate, but like, 
wouldn't necessarily be our first pick, but it's going to be an amazing time and experience because you just love who you're working with, right? You have amazing mentors and managers and that kind of, you know, collaborators. So yeah, totally. I think that, 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 that piece matters a lot. So now it's May 2016 and right. you decide to leave Khan Academy. Walk us through how you ended up at MIT. And at what point during your time at Khan Academy did you think that you were going to apply to MIT's PhD program? Yeah, you know, so the Media Lab is kind of a weird place in, in the academic world. It's sort of this hybrid between academic lab and like um, industry kind of, right? So it's like there's still this focus on doing research and writing papers, but there's also this focus on building, prototyping, building, and trying to get things out into the world and sort of get try to get people to use it and see how they use it. So it's very different. I guess there's a different kind of research. So the Media Lab, I've been thinking about applying to the Media Lab for years. When I was applying to Oxford, the road stuff, all of that, since then, for the past four or five years, I've been thinking about applying to Media Lab. I almost applied once as well when I was at Oxford, but I just never did. And then it was November of 2015, and the application was due in a few weeks. And I was just like, you know, I'm not getting any younger, right? I still, I like, you know, work had gotten better, but I still really missed research. I missed this chance to just ask and explore questions and, you know, get to build, prototype and build things, even though I was doing some of that Khan Academy, but it's just different. It's different when you're kind of, in a company versus kind of in an academic setting. And so I applied and I remember reaching out to the person who was running the lab, Deb Roy, I ended up being my advisor. And I just cold emailed him and I, and you know, it's classic, another really long cold email of like pouring my soul out, just being like, I think I'm not, this is what I care about. Like, I don't know a lot about what you guys are doing, but from what it says on your website, it's like there's relevance. And classic Deb wrote back one line. He was like, happy to chat. Heather will find some time. Heather was his assistant, still his assistant. He'd like happy to So anyways, we ended up chatting and we had a good conversation and I applied and fortunately I ended up working out. I was accepted. This was now March when I found out of 2016. I was just excited. Like I felt like, you know, my heart fluttered a little bit, right? Just thinking about the chance to kind of get to work on, just feel like, you know, the world's my oyster again in some ways, right? Feel like there's all these problems in the world that inshallah I can try to hopefully do something to you know, chip away at. But you know, what was also cool at the time was like, by that point, I would have also been happy staying at Khan Academy. So I think that was the other thing I learned. It was like, over time, I got more responsibility. You know, I got to know people more, got to work on projects in more depth. And it was really a great experience because it kind of was this realization that this is obviously personal belief, but like, I don't think there's just necessarily one thing that's meant for us, right? Whether it's our job, whether it's our partner, my wife might be listening right now, but you know, we've talked about that too. But you know, I don't feel like there's necessarily just one thing. I feel like we're given, you know, God gives us many paths and you know, sometimes we go down one, but we could have easily gone down the other and life would have been fine. Right. So I think I learned that by working, I think, and because I would have been fine staying if I hadn't gotten in, I did get in, it just felt like the better thing. So I ended up I ended up going. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that was a really useful kind of personal lesson for me. So we've talked a lot about just your entire educational career path, but I'd love to know more about just what made, like, you know, you said earlier, like for, for you, you're the kind of person that you really enjoyed asking questions and digging into, into issues and topics. So again, thinking about young Nabil, was there a moment in your childhood that informed who you are today and just how your brain works? It's really tough. You know, I think, I think um, a couple of things that, that stick out they're kind of small things but i guess one thing i appreciate is kind of the today is really just like the confluence of disciplines right like just the fact that like 
I remember when I took the uh, computer graphics class in my third year at, at, at Brown, it was this amazing realization that like art and math are so connected, right? Because like Pixar movies are straight like linear algebra in the background, you know, it's matrix multiplications, all this stuff to like transform shapes on screen, but it's like the output is this beautiful artistic expression, right? And I can't attribute that appreciation for art and, and computation to this experience, but I remember for some reason, I think I was like five or something. My mom was actually a local education board representative in Richmond, Montana. That's also probably where the education board roots come from, but she was running some kind of like art competition or something, art exhibit for Jamaati students to participate in. And I think I remember saying like, oh, you know, like I think somebody drew like a picture of a, of a cloud or a sky or something. And I was like, oh, like that looks like up there. Right? And I pointed up in the sky and, and then she was like, she's like, yeah, but like, you know, God made that and like, you know, a person drew this. And I was like, but does that mean God's an artist? You know, so I was just like, I don't know, like, it was just for me, it was like, art is like, you know, a, a reflection of like, God's mercy and science and all those sorts of things. So yeah, I, I feel like I feel like that certainly had um, just just that appreciation for like, even though I'm not the best designer, but like, I think appreciation for the aesthetic feeling like there's something beyond what we see, right, which I think is a lot of times what art tries to communicate, I certainly feel like that's something that has been ingrained in me over time. And I think it's definitely kind of informed my work. But yeah, I don't know. I feel like I need to excavate a lot more. Maybe I need to go to more therapy or something. I don't know. <laughs> oh, just or really, you, know, you keep a journal really, or something, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wish I could go back and keep. I need to watch those home videos. I feel like there might be some clues. In, although <laughs> so I feel like someone taped over our home videos with like Casper the Friendly Ghost or something, which is always, always sad to hear. But so you were talking about your mom working sort of in the educational realm. What do both of your parents do for comfortable sharing? Yeah, both of them work. You know, they had a small clothing store when we were growing up. So like selling Air Force Ones and jeans and all those kinds of things. I wish I could say I was more stylish than I am. I should be more stylish than I am now. But then they got into the hotel business. So they're in the most for most of like when I was in high school and stuff. And now they're in the hotel business. Got it. So... I know earlier in this conversation, you've talked a little bit about Melinda Hauser mom um, and his Fermans and his teachings and sayings. And so I'd love to talk a little bit about just how the Ismaili faith and the Ismaili community has played a role in your professional and personal life. Yeah, man. How much time you got? No, <laughs> I, mean, I attribute so much. Like, I think it's so interesting. One of the things that's fascinating is just as I've had a chance to like, I think like all of us meet a lot of interesting people and people that you know, people who don't believe in a deity, people who believe in different kind of ways of practicing faith or, or you know, reviewing a deity or whatever it is. One thing I've appreciated is how valuable it is to have, you know, a set of like values and principles to live your life by, right? Like, what is it that matters? Like that is, there's not an obvious answer to that for a lot of people. I mean, I think there's some sense of that maybe, right? Like we can in intuit what are the things that matter or what is good versus what is not good, right? Not that there's absolutes always with those things, but I think a lot of us can intuit those things. But just to have, you know, I think particularly the imam, right? Like just to have someone so lucidly share what are the things we value. And then to say, you should, you don't have to question those values, right? Like these are good values. And I think that's just like, a pretty remarkable gift. And I think that's the only way I can describe it as sort of a gift. So 
the language, you know, just to even you define a language that we can use to live our lives, like pluralism, right? Like those kinds of just the, the concept of pluralism is like, I don't think there's a more relevant concept in the world today, right? <laughs> you look at everything that's going on in the US, you know, racial justice, just across the board, right? Everything kind of connects to that issue. And so when I think about things like that, it's like growing up, I was like, I don't know what he's talking about. You know, like, that's great pluralism. Like, what does that mean? Why is he signing all these agreements with all these institutions? Like, okay, who cares? He's just signing pieces of paper with, you know, the state of Illinois. Like, what does that matter? But then I think as you go through, you realize how powerful the symbols are, right? How powerful the symbol of a Aga Khan museum is, like this fixture of like, of the Islamic, you know, legacy and world in, in, in a Western society that generally has not had the best impression of Islam, right? Over decades, not just since 9-11. So I think I think it's like the symbols, the actions, the words, the vocabulary, all of those things are like just gifts, right? And we're just given to us. And so certainly I think it's shaped the way I think about and see the world in ways that I can't even articulate. Like I don't even know how it's operated on my mind, right? So I think that's that's the most fundamental way. But then of course, just you know, the examples I gave earlier of to have an opportunity to serve on education board, which connects so deeply to the things I care about, to my research, right? To be able to learn things. I remember I, you know, in 2019, I had to do like my second year PhD exam and had to read like, you know, hundred papers or something and whatever, whatever, do projects, et cetera. And I was like, why am I reading all this? You know, like, I don't know what it has to do with that. Like, I like it, but it's like, oh man, I'm so tired of reading. And then I was appointed a few months later to education board and all the things I read, literally we started implementing. We started like, it was completely relevant to the Jamaati work I was doing. So just to get to see the connections between that professional work, to see that Jamaati work can be rigorous. We do a lot of data science in our Jamaati work. If anybody's interested in doing data science, Jamaati work, hit me up, right? I think there's just a lot of a lot of those connections. So they've been kind of like interspersed kind of worlds that that really flow together. And it's really hard for me to imagine. It's just hard to, for me to imagine like a a value system or a kind of way of seeing the world that's that's not this. So I feel very grateful. Were there any challenges that you've gone through in your career so far that you'd like to share with us and just how you overcame them? Yeah, I mean, I can even share like a year ago. I didn't even know. I mean, I mentioned I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up, right? So I don't know if I'm like, I'm really excited about the chance to be in academia. I think being a, a professor, uh, I really enjoy teaching. I really enjoy research, being writing. You know, as a professor, you get to do all of that. So it seems really exciting personally. But a year ago, I, I, I didn't even know if I should try to stay in academia. Should I try to find a job in industry? And just to be frank, the job search was very hard for me. Like as somebody who's not, you know, I use computer science, I use data science, but applied to education, applied to social media. There's not a lot of, it's not clear even what departments do you apply to, right? Like do you apply to a computer science department? Do you apply to a sociology department, media department? So I think there's always been this challenge of like, what's the box that I fit into, right? And I think it's like, you know, at the end of the day, we don't really fit in any boxes necessarily. We're, you know, we, we, we're unique individuals, but, but, you know, there's boxes, right? There's boxes that we we were supposed to try to fit into. And so that's always been a hard thing in terms of just kind of academic and disciplinary background. Like I'm still not really sure what boxes I fit into. My appointment at Northeastern is between the business school and the college of media and design. These are two schools I would have never imagined myself at. I barely even know what that means, right? Like, it's just, it's just like this kind of mix of different fields. And so I think that's been a challenge and will continue to be a challenge, but I think I think what's more important is we commit ourselves to a set of questions that we want to explore, right? And then you sort of, the secondary question is, okay, like, how do I, how do I go do that? What's the job I need to get? What's the thing I need to do in order to really be able to explore that? So 
I'm trying to take that, not what job do I want, but what, what questions do I want to ask approach and then hope, hope that inshallah throughout life that that secondary question of what job is that, does that resolve to will sort of resolve itself. Yeah, inshallah for sure. Anything you would do differently when you look back on your life so far? Learn to be more patient. <laughs> I think, you know, being married is an amazing experience, like selfishly, um, uh, to, you know, to really learn about my, you know, myself. I think there's really this interesting Sufi notion of like a mirror, right? Like our, our, our soul is like a, a mirror where we can, uh, we can see ourselves, right? If we reflect, if we meditate, we can really see ourselves, learn about ourselves, understand ourselves. And that awareness is like the basis for spiritual evolution. I think romantic partnership or like really any kind of loving relationship is a mirror as well, right? It's where you get to see your strengths, your flaws, right? In the context of your interactions and exchanges with someone else. And so I think I've learned a lot about myself through marriage. And I think there's a lot of things that I feel like I, you know, my partner, my wife on them has really helped me learn and grow in. So I don't know if I could go back and say, I, you know, I, I would know to do certain things differently, but I think I've definitely learned ways that I hope to continue to grow and, and be better and, you know, hopefully there's more life inshallah where I can try to do some of that. And then any big takeaways or life lessons that you'd like listeners to take from our conversation today? Oh man, I haven't rambled enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you rambled so much that now I'm asking you to dissect, you know, uh, summarize oh, it all. God, I gotta, <laughs> oh gosh, oh gosh. Let me run some summarization algorithm over this transcript. <laughs> I can spit out whatever, whatever gets uh uh, whatever comes out. I guess maybe it's sort of like the something along the lines of the last thing I said. It's I feel like sometimes it's hard and I, I think this will continue to be a struggle personally, but it's like kind of hard and exhausting to just try to find the boxes that you, you're supposed to fit into or whatever. And I guess the, the key is like, how do you focus on the work? You know, there's actually a great quote by Obama, which many of, many of us might have heard, but it was like, there's a Humans of New York post. The interviewer asked, when have you felt most broken? And he said, he gave this, he told the story and I'm going to sort of paraphrase it, but he basically said it was, you know, it was like 99. I was like 40 years old. I'd just gotten whooped. I lost congressional race. I spent a lot of time doing something I clearly wasn't doing well. And I was putting a lot of strain on Michelle and the kids and all of that. You know, he was like, maybe I should just give up. Right. And then he said, you know, at that moment he was like, well, what's important is that you keep it about the work, right? And if you kind of start to ask these questions, like, am I good enough? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? You know, when you make it about yourself, you kind of lose focus on what it's really about, right? But if you can somehow keep it about the work, keep it about the service, keep it about whatever it is that's external, that's sort of ultimately why those questions even matter, right? How you're contributing, et cetera. If you can keep it about the work, then you can always find a way. And I, I've turned back to that quote a lot, I think just in my own life. And I find a lot of inspiration in that. So I encourage you, if you haven't read it, to actually go read his real words and not my paraphrasing of them. But I think it's a great lesson that I think is very useful to hold on to. Thank you for sharing that. We'll definitely go find that <laughs> quote through Humans of New York's archives and, and link it for, for our listeners. Are there any books or podcasts that have helped you navigate either your professional or personal journey? Yeah, I, I really recommend this book called 40 Rules of Love by Elif Shafak, I think. I think that's just how you say her first name. So this whole idea of romantic relationships being a mirror, that's actually something that's explored a lot in that book. It's basically 
a fictionalized version of how Rumi and Chums met, right? And sort of how they influenced each other and how that led to this amazing like spiritual kind of you know explosion, right? <laughs> Poetry and all of that 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 we we still draw inspiration from today. So it's just a really beautiful, probably more for my personal journey. But actually, I quoted that book in my thesis. So you know, as and I have Hazaram quotes in my thesis. So again, it all kind of flows close together, but that, that's been a big one. And, you know, the other one I think that's great is the Walter Isaacson biography of Einstein. So it's the same guy who wrote the Steve Jobs biography. I think that a lot of people have read. The Einstein biography is amazing. I think it's Einstein. It's so, Einstein was such a spiritual person. I think if you read that book, you see how science and spirituality were two sides of the same coin for him, right? I think he talked a lot about how he thinks there's a spirit that's manifest in the laws of the universe that in, in front of which we must remain humble, right? So he said, and again, paraphrasing, but this idea of science and spirituality together, this idea of humility and submission in, in the face of this you know, divine creation and what's in front of us. There are so many concepts there that I've turned back to a lot. And I encourage the imam, of course, to talk so much about how science and spirituality are not distinct, but more and more, it's like, oh, do you believe in science or do you believe in religion, right? It's like, well, they're not, you know, they're connected, right? You don't have to pick one or the other. So I, I encourage anybody who's particularly, you know, science is the answer kind of person. I encourage you also to read that book because I think it'll, it could potentially broaden our perspectives a little bit. Of course. Final question. What's next for you, whether personally or professionally? Yeah, so I yeah, mentioned I'm going to hang around for the year, uh, try to start developing some of these new research areas, and then, um, uh, yeah, I'll start at Northeastern, inshallah, next fall. Yeah, personally, you know, my nephew was just born, so it, my brother and sister will also live in Boston, so we're excited to get to be around for a little bit longer and see him grow up, but between research and playing with a four-month-old, that, that usually keeps us busy, but uh, yeah, no, it's inshallah will be a good good journey ahead yeah, well, thank you so very much for your time today and you know i wish you the best of luck when you do begin your teaching i hope it's a great adventure for you thank you so much it was great great to chat thank you thanks for listening to this episode of the smiley connection if you'd like to connect with nabil galani or learn more about any of the resources he mentioned be sure to check out the show notes and if you're enjoying the show so far please give us a review and a five-star rating on the apple or google podcast apps it takes less than five minutes to do that compared to the hours of work that goes into each podcast episode. So we'd be eternally grateful for your time and support. We'd also love to hear from you. So please reach out to us at IPN podcast at ipnonline.net. This episode was produced by me and edited by the talented Cassily. Reem Merchant, our amazing head of relationship management, helped to research and report for this episode. Marketing for this episode was carried out by the stellar Samin Jawani. And our cover art is designed by the skilled Shaquille Momad. Also, many thanks to Zoha Momin, the head of strategic initiatives at IPN, and Dolly Lakani, our speaker advisor for the Smiley Connection. And lastly, I'd also like to thank the team behind SimonSays.ai, the software that helps the Smiley Connection get its transcripts. Music included in this episode are Just Relaxed by Les FM, Ambient Piano Amp Strings by Zakar Valaha, Chill Ambient by Coma Media, and Documentary also by Coma Media. As always, thanks so much again for listening and have a wonderful holiday season. Be safe and be well.